0: I am, I am so excited to bring this teaching tonight uh, as we just got back last night 10:30 uh, our staff and a few of our shepherds were able to go to the Calvary Northwest uh, pastors leaders conference two-day conference it was great incredibly encouraging um, just some amazing teaching from the Word of God good times of worship and while we were there um, something wonderful happened to me and I'll share it to you although not all of it because some of it is just between me and the Lord but uh the first night we had a time of, of just prayer and worship and seeking the Lord and, and uh, kind of a freedom to have people move in the Spirit and, uh, and as we were praying I, I was sitting in my, in my seat and he said if anyone would like to uh, perhaps receive the Holy Spirit for the first time or if someone would like to be refreshed and, and just ask for more filling of the Spirit just come on forward and and, and kneel down and we'll just be praying and it was it was orderly and it was wonderful and I was sitting there thinking I'd love some more of the Holy Spirit you know I would just I would love more of, of what you have and there was something very specific that I began to pray I won't tell you what it was because that's the personal part but it was something I, I just I just desired and I started laying it out before the Lord and asking Him very specifically in some very specific language in fact a couple of specific verses that that spoke what i I wanted, what I was seeking from the Lord. And um, and as I prayed that, I thought, I, I just need to go up front and kneel down, so I went up front and kneeled down, I was up next to Les, and I'm just praying, I keep praying the same thing over and over, and I feel this hand on my shoulder, I thought it was Les at first, but well, was some guy I didn't know, and he started praying out loud for me, and he prayed exactly what I had been praying, word for word, it was just like... And it was in that moment. And I had to tell you that to say, how do you know when God is talking to you? Well, God didn't say, Rick, I answered thy prayer. (laughs) But He answered my prayer. I mean, I knew in that instant, God was saying, I heard your prayer. I told Him to pray it, and I want you to know that I answered it. And so that just thrills me. It thrilled me this morning to get up and open up my Bible. And and I had a a goal of, of taking us through chapters 9 and 10 which we're going to do tonight. But uh, typically I have more than one day to pray it through and think it through, but with the last week was really full and then being gone uh, Monday, Tuesday of this week, I just didn't even have time really to do much thinking about it. So I just opened it cold and I said, Lord, okay, it's uh, you know, 8 o'clock and at 6 or so, i got to be heading down to the barn, so make it happen. <laughs> And it was just, it was wonderful. It was just download, just download. And this, the things that I saw in here, and I love this because there are places of Scripture that are just, they're obscure because you don't spend a lot of time there. We go to these power passages and we go to certain Psalms and certain aspects of the Gospel stories of Jesus. And we go to these places because they're familiar and they ring true. But then there are other sections like how many, let me just ask you, how many of you have spent a lot of time in Ecclesiastes 9 and 10? What is wrong with you people? This is rich stuff. I haven't either, and so I, I hit the ground running. Lord, what do we have here? Where are we going? I've read through the book a, a few times just in preparation to know where Kohalath was going. But but wow, wow, it's it's good stuff. And he's just he's I feel like he's got us kind of hook, line, and sinker. I'm gonna open up the thing and see if the bat will get the clue. Run into the dark. That's just really cool. Yeah, really. All of a sudden <laughs> What is it? A flock of bats? What do you call those? A gaggle of bats? A battalion? Bat battalion? Leathernecks? What? I don't know. Okay. Let's 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 ask God to bless this. And I'll tell you what, let's put our focus on Jesus and let the bat do what he's gonna do. Just not on my notes. Father, thank you so much again for this time. Thank you for the precious time in prayer. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for leading us in worship. And thank you for your word that you have for us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. In Jesus, we ask your Holy Spirit to show us these things, to show us what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. He's out. Somebody close the door quick. See him come right back in. Okay, so, if you can start the day without caffeine or pet pills... If you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit. If you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol and sleep without the aid of drugs, you're probably a dog. <laughs> I thought that was funny. My mom sent that to me, email, I thought I gotta share that. Let me ask you something though. You lay that all out, you hear all these things, and, and truly I looked at Reggie when I read that and said, that's him. That is him. He doesn't need anything, he's just glad to be there, man. He's just happy to be lying on the floor of my office. It's cool. If I say his name, his tail's going. That's all it takes. Hey, Reg. And they just have it. You know, the dog's life. How different are Christians from the world? Really? Because when I read down this list, some of these things I would think if you're walking in Christ, you're not going to be doing. You're not going to be needing anyway. But a lot of these things we relate to. A lot of these things were kind of that... Way and what is it that sets us apart from the rest of the world that, that we live in? The truth is, and anytime someone says the truth is, anytime Jesus says the truth is, or truly, truly I say to you, look out because the hammer's about to hit, we like to sit in our churches and think that we're different, that we're unique, that we are sanctified and splendiferous. But at street level, the savvy world sees us differently than we see ourselves. And this is something that I've been thinking about, heard a little bit in the teaching the last couple of days. And it struck me, and it's true, that. and, and hear me on this, I can back this up, it's not my idea. Jesus said this, the world tends to be more savvy than we are. The world tends to be more shrewd. It's almost as if when we become Christians, we think or we equate innocence with stupid. I, I've got to, I can't be, you know, smart. I'm a Christian now. And so we just get dumb. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you're a dumb group. In fact, you're here Wednesday night. It's those Sunday morning people, really. <laughs> They're the dumb no. Here's the thing. Jesus said in Luke 16, 18, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. It was true when Jesus said it, and it's true now. We have a way of seeing ourselves as Christians. How many of you were raised going to church? Okay, that question was asked this weekend, and same thing, it was like the majority. were raised going to church. That's great, I'm so glad you're here. Where are the lost people? (laughs) <laughs> Brian raised his hand. Where are those who walked in the door going, I heard something about this Jesus. Do you guys talk about him here? The reason I point this out is we come into this place and we have a mindset. I can say certain words. I can speak certain language. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I can say, What the Spirit really moved me to do this. And you'll go, oh, yeah, the Spirit yeah, right. Whereas in the world, if you're talking to someone who doesn't know about the Holy Spirit, about Jesus, about God, and you say, the Spirit moved me to do this, they say, what, do you have a poltergeist? <laughs> What's up with you? The world sees us differently than we see ourselves. When we see ourselves and say, it's all good, the world looks at us and goes, you know, it's not as good as you think. Now, I'm not saying the world's always right, either. And I don't like when the world calls out hypocrites, to myself or to my Christian brothers and sisters, but you know so often they're right. Because they're they're not seeing the, the kind of um, that kind of covering that, that comes over us a little bit when we get into our own comfort zone. What does it mean that the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light? It means that worldly people are not so easily duped. And we just need to get that fact down. You're not going to bait and switch a humanist into Christianity. If I get them to come just enough times, eventually they're just kind of going to get stuck. <laughs> they won't even know what hit them. Now they know. And they know we talk about them when we close our doors and worship and open our Bibles. They know. They know we set ourselves apart. They know we want to see ourselves as different from them. They recognize in us-them mentality is as much sadly as sometimes we do. You're not going to win the secularist by a wise debate, or by tricky statistics, or by a regurgitated email that's been sent out for the last decade over and over and over, and, and it's changed every time it goes until now it's really, there's not a whole lot of truth left in it. You know what I'm talking about? You get those emails from time to time, and you remember getting it seven years ago. But the prayer that was prayed by this governor in this state was actually prayed by a high school principal in a different state seven years ago. That's the exact same prayer. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. I just I don't know why people. Um, and I'm not blaming anybody for sending that to me this last week. It's okay. But <laughs> but I don't know why people write false things thinking that maybe we can we can shock the world into belief with this cool story that's not true. They know it's not true. Because they've seen it come across their email for the last ten years too and go, oh it was different than those Christians. They're savvy. The world is is savvy. The world does have some sense about what's going on here. You're not gonna change a heart by changing someone's politics. Which means, if we're really about saving people, we're going to have some people with different political persuasions joining us. Which is really going to affect my jokes. (laughs) So what do we do? Listen, jot this down. If you're a note taker, even if you're not, write this on your hand, on your forehead, on your neighbor's arm, whatever. (laughs) Jot this down. It's a heads up for where we're going Sunday. And I want you to be praying it ahead. We Here's what we do. We relearn the language of the lost. We have got to relearn the language of the lost. For some of you, it was language you didn't speak that long ago. And I'm not talking about cussing. For some of us, we haven't spoken the language of the lost ever because we were born in church, you know. For others, it's been so long since you spoke the language of of the lost, had the mindset of the humanist, you've forgotten what it's like to be in that place. We need to relearn it. Now, I'm not saying we need to return to the behavior of the lost. But we do need to relearn the language of the lost. We forget it. We forget how lost people think. We forget how how the humanist speaks, the, the, the dialect, even the shrewd, cynical mindset of our culture. We forget And so we come at our culture so often with a Christian culture and they go, dude, I don't even know what planet you're from. How are we going to reach those people who God has called us to reach? We've got to speak their language. We've got to relearn how it is that lost people think. And praise the Lord, Kohalath is here to help. Verse 1, chapter 9. For I have taken all this to my heart, And explain, or make clear it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. That's good news. Righteous men, wise men, their deeds, hey, that's all in God's hands. But then he says, man does not know whether it will be love or hatred, anything awaits him. What? The righteous and the wise, all their deeds are in God's hands, but God's hands may be loving or God's hands may be hatred. That's what he's saying. That's what Kohalath is saying here. Uh, Let me make this clear, he says. It don't matter how good you are. Because you could be good and God could love you for it, or you could be good and God could hate you for it. That's, that's what the humanist thinks. It doesn't matter. Because God is, is unpredictable. He's done good things in my life if He's out there. He's done bad things in my life if He's out there. The humanist would say, how can you say He's always good? Don't you see what's going on around you? How can you say He's always good? Look at what's happened to you in the last week if something bad has happened. So, all of your deeds, great, they're in the hands of God, but who knows if it will be a loving, tender hand or a brutal, hateful hand, the humanist would say. Now, I read that and I went, wow, that's in the Bible? And what if some, someone only read that verse by itself? What if someone just picked up a Bible, flipped it open, it landed at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1, and they read, I have taken all this into my heart and explained it, that the righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Well, that's nice. Don't need that. Wow. Now, honestly, God is so good at His Word. And He puts in there exactly what He knows is going to catch people is going to attract people, is going to... That, that verse alone, honestly, it might just just pique the interest of a humanist. Because they thought that. You might say, "While well, we're saying, that's in the Bible? Oh no. A humanist would say, that's in the Bible? I've had that same thought about God myself. I wonder, that. is He fair? If He's out there? Is He just? Is He good? Is He just a cosmic downer? I Means he like those pretentious uptight guys on CBN? That's God? Don't need him. What's he really like? If God is anything like us, the secularist might say. If he's anything like us, he's unpredictable. And and therein lies the problem, because until you come to faith in God, the way you look at God is as you look at other human beings. It's the creation of God in our image. It's how we look at everything. Frankly, it's why Disney has done so well. Because we even look at animals in our image. They make animals talk and act and think like human beings, which they don't. You know, Bambi. Mama! Mama! You know I mean? It's a dumb animal. Okay? And I'm not meaning to be crude here, but... But we look at God, the the human being, the non faith person, the person who doesn't have any belief at all, looks at at God the way they look at man and says, Well, if he's anything like we are, he's unpredictable. That's how he is. He could love you, he could hate you. That's what the Quran teaches. He can love you, he can hate you if he wants to. It doesn't really matter what you do. You could live a perfect life. You could have one foot in heaven and one foot on the earth, just about to die, and at the last second, the Quran teaches that. God could change his mind. Allah could change his mind, not God. Allah could change his mind and say, nah, you're going to go to hell. Could be love, could be hate. Who knows? Unpredictable. Because under the sun, we have a tendency to see everything in our image. The humanist perspective, which remember, humanism elevates man. So everything is viewed through the lens of man. Everything is relative to man. And this is the language he's speaking here. Verse 1 is not saying that this is truth. And remember, the Bible speaks the truth, but not every verse of the Bible is truth. What do you mean? I mean, the Bible deals with reality and how people think in reality that we might come to know the truth. And it is true, people think this way, and Kohalath is nailing it. He's saying this is how the humanist thinks. Verse 2, he goes on, "...it's the same for all. There's one faith for the righteous and for the wicked." For the good, for the clean, and for the unclean. For the man who offers a sacrifice and the one who does not offer a sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. We're all the same. And we're all have, we are all have the same fate. We're all going to the same place. Verse 3, this is an evil. And all that is done under the sun... That there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. It's not uplifting talk. It's not encouraging talk, but it's honest. Kohala is speaking the language again as he has so much. And by this time in the study, I hope you're getting familiar with the language. This is what I'm talking about, the language of the lost. How does a lost person think? How does a humanist who doesn't trust their life to God, how do they think? How do they speak? And, and here are some things that they say. Or ways that they think. Number one, life choices make no difference. That's good for you, but this is for me. Your Christianity, that's fine for you, but my secular life is good for me, so leave me alone. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you go to church on Sunday. If that's what you choose to do, fine. That's not what I choose to do. Life choices make no difference. Does anyone, especially who was not raised in church, ever remember thinking, and pardon the phrase, life is a crapshoot? Do you ever remember thinking something like that? Life is a roll of the dice, life is the luck of the draw. We'll just see what happens. What's going to happen this week? Could be good. Could be bad. Who knows? Some get a good run for a while, others get squashed. It's just the way it is. Kohaleth is speaking the clear, unpretentious language of the postmodern secularists. Truth is what you make it culture. Which just so happened to be the culture of the 10th century BC as much as it is today. Which is amazing. Sociologists would say, we're in the postmodern world. Well, it was postmodern. Uh, in the 900's before Christ they were speaking the same language and that's the language that he has tapped into and again it's what makes Ecclesiastes so brilliant because unlike any other book in the Bible it comes through the language of the lost which is why this book to me has become one of the most significant books we've looked at because it is shocking me back into trying to think about and be aware of how non-Christian people view the world How they think. So that when I talk to someone who is lost, I can be straight up with them. Honest. Authentic and real. Not coming at them my way, but but realizing how they view all of this. And just getting down to truth with them. Remember, Kohalath is preaching with his feet firmly planted on the earth, his humanistic mass securely fastened. He is under the sun as he's doing this teaching. And we're getting down to the nitty-gritty of it. We're in chapter 9, right? Chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, we're done. We're going to do 9 and 10 tonight. We'll do 11 and 12 next Wednesday. The last Sunday teaching will be this Sunday. And I think it's the most important. But here we are, this sermon, and if you haven't already realized it, you could say it is being preached in the theater of the absurd. Oh, the United Nations. No. <laughs> the theater of the absurd is where Kohaleth plants his pulpit and preaches the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's what's difficult for Christians reading this book. That's why it's it's hard. Life is not absurd for us. Life is wonderful. Life is a blessing. You give and take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. When it's hard, I go to my knees when it's great i praise the lord either way i'm going to be here worshiping either way i'm going to be leaning on brothers and sisters in christ either way i'm going to be coming to the lord in prayer because life is amazing it's revelatory it's redemptive it's abundant that's life for me and so i come to the book of ecclesiastes and i start reading some of these verses and from my christian perspective going oh but but that's not that's not the way that's not my experience well, no, it's not, because I'm a believer in Jesus. But this is the experience of the lost world, of so many people. For you and me, Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Man, I, I, I believe that. I love that verse. Ephesians 2.10, we're His workmanship. Literally in the Greek, we're His poems. Poiema. We are God's poema, His poems, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Beforehand? Yeah, before you were a Christian. Before you were one of God's people. Someone said, uh, I forget which speaker said this. You were God's people before you were God's people. God's people were always God's people before they became God's people. In other words, he was already preparing for you to do good works in Jesus Christ when you were sinning and didn't even know who Jesus was. What does that tell you about the rest of the lost world around us? There are people who are lost right now and they are God's people. And he's already preparing good works for them to do. They just need to find faith in Jesus so that they can do those good works. And this is where we are. Philippians one 6 i I'm confident of this very thing. He, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Hallelujah! It's not what I'm reading in this Kohalath book, but hallelujah! That's, that's where I'm at. And please, don't forget this. 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Praise the Lord. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But don't forget what Paul said right before that. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And make sure we lock the door before any of them get in here. Such were some of you. Not me. Some of you. I can't find myself on the list. Unfortunately, I I can but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Such were some of us. Which means such were some of them. Such are some of them, but they will be has eventually. Isn't that the hope? The people who don't know Jesus now will know Him and will look back and say, yeah, I once was, such was me, but not anymore. We were there and we're here, and so... We want to do the same, to see the same thing. Don't forget where you came from. That's the bottom line. Don't forget where you came from. The righteous, the wicked, the good, the bad, the clean, the unclean. It's all one big, dysfunctional, pathetic, aimless, hopeless family without Jesus. And we just happen to be saved. If there's ultimately no difference in how we act, back to the humanist mindset, then life really is absurd. And that is Kohala's point. That's his point. You're right. Life's absurd. You know, you can agree with the humanist on that point. Because from their perspective, life is absurd. It doesn't make sense. How can you make sense all that? You know what? You're right. It doesn't make sense. Outside of Jesus. But it makes sense in Jesus. How can you say that? Well, I see where you're at. Can I share where I'm at? Because it's it's a completely different perspective. But Kohalath isn't there yet. He's going to push the point further. Verse 4. Whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. I love when he gets poetic. That should be a song. Surely a live dog. Anyway, Better than a dead lion. What is he saying here? He's saying as long as we live, believer or not, as long as a human being is alive, there is some degree of hope. It's, it's unique in humanity. We have this thing called hope. We have this ability to hope beyond hope. Without Jesus, it's blind hope, but it's hope nonetheless. What is it that makes people say after the towers come down, we can rebuild? It's hope. It's just hope, which isn't a whole lot without faith, but it's, it's still there, it's in us. This this ability, it's blind but it's groping. It's got to get better than this. It's got to get better. This year has been so bad, next year's got to get better. What is that blind hope? And he's saying as long as you're breathing, you got hope. It might change. Something might get better. The human spirit has that unexplainable capacity to hope. And I think it's eternity in our hearts. Chapter 3, verse 11. He has set eternity in our hearts. I think that's why we just have this, believe it or not, again, why the humanist has the ability to hope, because eternity's there. And so the humanist keeps thinking, There's more. It, it can get better. I'm not sure how. But I got this weird hope. What does he mean better a live dog than a dead lion? Well, dogs in the Bible were not what dogs are for us in America. Not the typical typical, you know, happy go barky dogs that we have in our homes. Run around cute, fluffy, take them to the vet, feed them all kinds of food, take care of them, put them up on the couch, watch TV with them. No. Dogs in biblical times were filthy mongrels. And often, with one exception in all of the Bible, as a matter of fact, dogs are referred to negatively. Remember what Goliath said to David when David was running at him? You come at me like a dead dog? You give me a dead dog to fight? You know, because it was a slam. He was trash talking, and that's how you did it. Dead dog. Dogs were not a good thing. Lions, on the other hand, were mighty and noble. We call them the king of the jungle. They did too. King of the forest, the mighty lion. But all the strength of the mighty Mufasa is nothing more than worm food when he's dead. And he's saying, better a live dog, though it's a mongrel, though it's scruffy, it's alive. The lion's dead. Mighty, powerful, but dead. So he's done. The live mongrel still has hope. That's what he's saying. Which is good, because there are days when I'm more scruffy than others, and I still have hope. Verse 5. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. It's not that they don't remember, it's that nobody remembers them. I could just go down a list of names. I won't take the time to do it. But of people who were very significant in their day that none of us have ever heard of. Their memories forgotten. Indeed their love, their hate, verse 6, their zeal have already perished and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Simon Cowell, we were told yesterday I believe it was, and I looked it up, it's true. GQ magazine tells us that Simon Cowell wants to be cryogenically frozen when he dies. Simon Cowell, who was one of the judges of American Idol and now is doing the X Factor, and apparently that's dying, but cryogenically frozen, he admits to GQ magazine. It's an insurance policy, he said. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it does work, I'll be happy. If it's possible, and I think that it will be someday, why not have a second crack? Does that sound crazy? I think it's a good idea. Cryogenically frozen. You know what that is. It's it's getting frozen right before you die or or just immediately after death. They freeze you real quick in hopes that they can unfreeze you and revive you when the technology catches up and people can have a a second go at life. Or if you can't afford being cryogenically frozen, all of you, they'll cut off your head and just freeze that. By the way, Simon Cowell also takes a weekly intravenous drip of B12, magnesium, vitamin C, and something for your liver. What's he doing? He's hoping against hope. He's trying to prolong what life he has and then he's hoping that if I can get frozen real quick, a cowl popsicle, if you will, right after I die, then they can unfreeze me and I've got some hope to live some more. It's hoping against hope and it's ridiculous. But we humans are really good at that. Verse 7, Go then, <laughs> eat your bread and happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. And let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, (laughs) which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in all your toil which you have labored under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. (laughs) He just... Leads you along. Oh, good. Eat, drink, be merry, hang out with my wife, wear cool clothes, you know, all this stuff. And you're going to die. What? He takes you right down this primrose path. It is dripping with sarcasm. What he shares here... Boy, I'll tell you what. Do not read verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 as a scriptural admonition. It's not. It is a satirical resignation. This is satire. This is sarcasm. This is sardonic. He's saying... Hey, yeah, I mean, if you're in this hope against hope kind of mentality, then this is the best you got. He's talking about what I would call the blessing of a moral life, not a faithful life, a moral life. The blessing of a good person's life, not a believer. It's not the abundant life that Jesus promised. It's just the moral life. Notice this, verse 7. He indicates, eat your 10 grain bread, drink your tasty wine. And just assume that God likes you. Why do you say that? Because He says God has already approved your works. You're a good person. I'm good with God. And God, you know, Elohim. I don't know his name, but the higher power. I'm good. We're good because I I've done some good things. So I'm good with God. I can enjoy my bread. I can drink. My wine. Verse 8, you can wear your white. Why is it wear white all the time? Is it because you particularly look good in white? Is that your color? No, it's ignore death, the color of mourning, the black dress of mourning. Wear white. Oh, and by the way, shampoo regularly. Do not let oil be lacking on your head. Okay? Just get some good shampoo. Get some cool clothes. You know, maybe Banana Republic. They have a lot of white clothes, that kind of thing. Verse 9 Enjoy your wife. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love. That's interesting, coming from Kohalath, Solomon. You know, if if he's standing up there preaching, my thought would be Which one? (laughs) Enjoy your wife. Okay, you mean today? Today's wife on the calendar? (laughs) Which one are you talking about? He's talking about a woman in the singular. Enjoy the woman whom you, the, the one woman. So again, we're talking about a moral person. This is moral living. Enjoy it. You have your reward. Verse ten. Work hard for now because you're going to be rotten and sheol then. Wow. Second thing to note. This is as good as it gets. If you're hoping against hope, this is absolutely as good as it gets. By the way, I ran across this. This is fascinating to me. The Epic of Gilgamesh. Have you ever heard of that? Maybe someone mentioned that in a class and you were supposed to take notes and maybe you got the cliff notes and you forgot it. The Epic of Gilgamesh, verses 7 through 10, may have their inspiration from that ancient story. Oh, the inspiration is the Holy Spirit. But it's entirely possible that the Spirit in Kohelet, drew off of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written back in the days of Abraham and would have been well known a thousand years later when Solomon came along and being a wise and, and learned man as Solomon was, no doubt he read the Epic of Gilgamesh. Why are you talking about this? Well, listen. Let me tell you just a little bit of the story and overlay it over verses 7 through 10. See if you hear some of the same stuff. At a certain point in the story... The best friend of the hero dies, and so he begins a search for immortality. And as he's searching for immortality, he ends up in the epic of Gilgamesh in what's called the Garden of the Gods. There in the Garden of the Gods, a young woman named Siduri, who was a winemaker, says this, "'Gilgamesh, whither are you wandering?' Life which you look for, you will never find. For when the gods created man, they let death be his snare, and life withheld in their own hands. Now listen, Gilgamesh, fill your belly. Day and night make merry. Let days be full of joy, dance and make music day and night. Wear fresh clothes, wash your head, bathe. Look at the child that is holding your hand and let your wife delight in your embrace. She says, these things alone are the concern of man, not eternal things. Just this life. How many people do you know who are living this way? Good people Gracious, philanthropic, giving money to good needs, doing good deeds, and they're caught up in the good life. You know, I don't care how good your life is, eventually it's not going to be good enough. I'm not even talking about getting into heaven. I'm talking about your life will not be good enough to fulfill you eventually regardless of how wonderful it may seem in the moment. This is this is what Pohelius is saying. I mean, I mean, are you getting this? Moral living is good, but even if it's just about being good, that's all you get. It's a good thing to be moral. But if that's it, that's all you get. There's your reward. Hope you enjoy it. Which brings me right back to the place of a, of a very, very sinful thought. Well, if moral living is as good as it gets, I don't want to live morally. You know? I want to crash and burn. I just want to burn up on the way out, you know. Whoa! Jump on the bike and see how fast I can go through Oak Harbor. Oh, this is Done. But man, I went out in a blaze of stupidity. He's really pushing this point because if moral life is all that I get, I'm still going to go looking for. The life that's withheld there in the garden of the gods. I'm still going to wonder if there's not more somewhere. If there's not, I don't know, living water that can bring life to me. You know what I'm talking about when I say living water? Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. A well that's just flowing, a fountain. Do you feel like in your Christian life, by the way, that you're walking in a constant fountain of the Spirit of God? Or do you feel dry? Because according to Jesus, we shouldn't feel dry. His Spirit should keep us refreshed, flowing. If anyone is in the flow, it should be us. John 7.37, If anyone is thirsty, he says, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers. Rivers of living water. Not streamlets, not cricks. (laughs) Rivers will be flowing. If We're believing in Jesus. So why do we get dry? Because we're not believing in Jesus. We haven't really been hanging out with Him. We've gotten kind of focused on hoping beyond hope. Verse 11, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift. Well, that's discouraging if you're running track. The battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise or wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Again, we're right back to luck of the draw. Moreover, a man does not know his time. We read this when we first opened up the book like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare so the sons of men are ensnared in an evil time when it suddenly falls on them life choices make no difference really to the humanist and this is as good as it gets this life so choose how you're going to live this is you get one go around Unless you believe you're going to be reincarnated as a as a tree. Number three, number three, everything happens by happenstance. It's all chance. It's luck. It's coincidence. It's the theater of the absurd. Life without God is the theater of the absurd. It does not make sense, and it never will. Then Kohalif goes a little further, gives a parable. Verse 13. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, Poor wise man. And he delivered the city by his wisdom. Woohoo! All right! Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. So this little story, this little parable, I, I would call it, if I was writing a children's book, and I took this story and put it in a children's book, I would call it The Underdog Who Outsmarts the Offensive King. This poor wise man, little guy in the city. He's smart, but he's just one guy. And the king comes against the city, and he builds his siege works and his ramps. And he goes on the offensive. And the city is done for, but for the little wise man. He says, I got a way. I got a way out. I got a way we can do this. And the underdog wins. And this is, man, this is a great Sunday teaching right here. I'm not gonna do it Sunday. I will give it to you right now in a nutshell. We live, listen, we live between two small cities. Right here in the barn tonight. We're between two small cities. Some of you live in each one of those two small cities. And a great king has them surrounded. What are you talking about? Prince of this world. The prince of darkness. The one who would be king over God, who would raise himself up to be king, the one who desires that throne more than anything else—Satan—and he has Oak Harbor and Anacortes, two small cities. He's got them surrounded. But here's the thing: couple of things to know. Number one, the underdog is formidable. The underdog is formidable. Poor little wise man, but he is formidable. You guys remember Underdog? Here he comes to save the day. fly in, little dog with a cape you may be poor but listen, you may be poor but if you are wise in Christ you already know how to save the city you know how to save the city surrounded here this is a dark state you all know this, I don't have to tell you the least church state in the union we could go on and on statistically, spiritually very very spiritual state but very very pagan and we have two cities right here just right here That's not even dealing with Coupville surrounded, you know, Mount Vernon surrounded, Bo Edison surrounded, and on out we go, but these cities, small cities surrounded, yet the underdog is formidable. In Paul's swan song to Pastor Timothy, who you know we called him Timid Tim, when we did the study of 2 Timothy, Paul said to Timothy, here's how you save a city, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, which means sun, rain, doesn't matter. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Do these things, Timothy. Preach the Word. You know how to save the city. We know We know right now how to save Anacords. We know how to save Oak Harbor. Preach the Word. God's Word does not come back to Him empty. It succeeds in the matter for which He sent it. Preach the Word. Get it out there. The underdog is formidable. We have the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God, and we have the power of the sword of the Word. Together, we are formidable. We're powerful people. We're poor in our flesh, but we're wise in Christ. And so, poor little wise men, poor little wise women, you are formidable, though we may be the underdog. Let me ask you this. If God gives you one life, can you save a city? What if, I've said this before, what if each one of us devoted ourselves to praying that God would give us one soul this year? Just one. Not looking for... Something big in and of myself, just Lord, let me lead one person to Christ this year by the power of the word and by the anointing of your spirit. And by the way, Hudson Taylor Hudson Taylor prayed, Lord, I pray that your spirit would begin to work through me to them. I'm asking your spirit to work through me to them. He realized I gotta pray it through before I begin to go out there and go on the offensive. Go out there and try to save the city. I got to start by praying. What if we all just did that? And it would seem insignificant. Okay, so so God uses Rick to save one person this year. Do you know how many people are in and out the doors of the bridge right now? About 400, which means in one year we'd be at 800. Oh, cool, a big church. No, 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 no. We'd be we'd be 400 more saved people, which is a lot of rejoicing of angels in heaven. Well what if we just up that a little bit? How about we all just pray God would you give me the the awesome privilege of leading two people to Jesus this year. Just two. No more than that, just two. 400 people led two people to Jesus this year, do the math. It just starts to get astronomical. Yeah, I don't know if I could do that. No, you can't. But he can, his spirit, his word. But know this, it's not how this how the story is. The underdog is formidable, but number 2, the underdog is forgotten. Why? But I led someone to Christ. It's not about you. The underdog is forgotten. The focus of the story is not the underdog. It's the city. And this is not a morality tale to teach us how to behave. Actually, it's a scathing commentary on what people are like. They quickly forget the hand that saves them. Or in the case of the underdog, the paw that saves them. Whatever works. They just forget Are you hoping to leave a legacy? You probably won't. Good news, you're going to be forgotten. (laughs) You know, before I became a a believer in Jesus, that would have bugged me to no end. But now that I'm a believer in Jesus, I realize I want to be forgotten. John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he might increase. And the greatest joy in the heart of a follower of Jesus is becoming less as He becomes great. So, underdogs, you're formidable. Underdogs, you're going to be forgotten. For all your great works in this world, you will be forgotten like the dust from whence you came. So we just ignore the city? No! We do something very simple. 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul said to Timothy, Fulfill your ministry. You spend your life fulfilling your ministry. And by the way, if you fulfill your ministry, you'll be fulfilled. You may not be remembered. Good, big deal. You'll be fulfilled. Number three in this story the underdog is formidable, the underdog is forgotten. Number three, but the underdog is faithful. He's a faithful dog. Who's a good boy? He's a faithful dog. So what if we're forgotten? Jesus said, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2.10 Paul said to Timothy, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith, and the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. It doesn't matter if you're remembered. That's your legacy. What matters is just that You run just that you run. It's not your legacy, it's His glory. That's what we're looking for. You don't run for your legacy, you run for His glory. And that's a good race to run. And note this, the last two verses are are telling. He says, the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but... (laughs) One sinner destroys much good. What's he saying? He's saying wisdom is valuable. But even wisdom is vulnerable. It's valuable, but it's vulnerable. It's a good thing, and yet it can be so easily messed up. And so again, it's not about my wise legacy. It's just about God's glory. Now that's a great place to stop for tonight, but you can probably guess we're not going to. Chapter 10. (laughs) Good, <laughs>